0: Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 37. And in this episode of Sunday School for Adults, Rabbi Shalom discusses the academic calendar and the humanistic approach to Sunday school and holidays. More information about Kol Hadash, including Sunday school curriculum, can be found on our website, kolhadash.com. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about the calendar. So I can start off by
1: saying Happy New Year. Um, You know, we go through many New Years in our cycle of uh, the year. We have our calendar New Year. Um, Those who are friends with me on Facebook know that I object to the term Secular New Year uh, because, um, after all, I'm secular most of my life. (laughs) So calling this the Secular New Year as opposed to the Jewish New Year um, isn't fully accurate. Uh, But uh, we call it the Gregorian Year, technically it's the Gregorian calendar. We also have Chinese New Year that's coming up in a couple of weeks. We have the New Year for Trees, which is also known as Tu B'Shvat. We have the tax uh, season. Every nonprofit organization has their own fiscal calendar, which has a new year. Uh, you've got the school new year. You, this, kids may count it by the camp <laughs> anniversary year. You have your birthdays. You have your anniversaries. Um, even yard sites are on a year calendar. So uh, we have a lot of cycles going on all at once. And so the challenge for us in trying to decide from the Jewish calendar, what's relevant for our students to learn, particularly in the younger grades, when they tend to do calendar and holidays in formal study. Of course, they do it informally by coming to the Tu Bishvat Seder, by coming to the Passover model Seder, in the older grades too. Uh, We had to decide which circles and which elements are the most important and which of those are the most important. So I want to give you an example of an area that was left on the editing room floor. How many of you know what an Eruv is? Ever heard the word Eruv? Okay. An Eruv is a legal gimmick uh, created by rabbis to enable you to carry certain things on Shabbat. It's the wire that's run around a certain area, town, uh, even a city um, that creates a fictional courtyard. The original idea for the Eruv was this. One of the rules of Shabbat, as the rabbis interpreted, do not do any work, which is all it really says in the Bible, it doesn't say anything about light bulbs or driving or any of that. Um, One of the ways they interpreted it was, let's say you had three or four houses that shared a courtyard, they all opened up to a shared courtyard. Well, during Shabbat, you could take a certain amount of food out into the courtyard and establish that as a living space, and then you could be more free to move things around because one of the rules that you weren't allowed to break was carrying objects from a private domain to a public domain or from a public domain to a private domain so if you're in your house you can't take things out of your house into the public that you might be able to use within your house well if you have this courtyard it's a little bit of both but if it's closed in on four sides and you put some food in there so it's like a living space then you can call it a living space for the period of Shabbat, and you can move things around within that uh, domain. So that was the origin of the idea of the Eruv. Uh, Of course, they had debates. If you're going from public to private, can you roll it? Can you throw it? (laughs) You know, if you're not carrying it, what's the difference? Uh, What counts is too much carrying versus enough. Uh, Many people will actually, instead of carrying their keys, they pin them to their clothing. So they're wearing them, technically, and not carrying them. and, of course, there's a whole detail of uh, why the arrow is suspended on wires and not put flat on the ground, and, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, this is a topic that when our kindergartners and first graders are learning about Shabbat, we've decided is not as crucial <laughs> as some other details. Is it Jewish? Absolutely. Is it useful to know about for Jewish cultural literacy? Sure. Is it interesting? Yeah. In an exotic, you know, odd way. Is it relevant to how they might observe the holiday? Well, much less so than the idea of family time or rest or eating challah or lighting candles. All of those may be a lot more relevant. We had a student a number of years ago whose grandparents wanted to get her a gift for her bat mitzvah and they actually wanted to get her a talis, which is a nice example of the change in Jewish life because (laughs) traditionally, talises were only for men. Now, uh, in the conservative and even in the reformed Jewish world, many women have chosen to wear them, and so the grandparents wanted to give her a talis just like they gave their grandsons talises. Uh, The challenge is, of course, she's being raised in a humanistic congregation where we don't use them. So my counter-suggestion was, why not get her Shabbat candlesticks? Because we can use those at her bat mitzvah, and it'll be sort of an inaugural use event. It'll be of use to her no matter where on the Jewish spectrum she lands. She can light candles and what she says may be different, but she'll be using them. And most importantly, it'll be more relevant to who she is and how she may choose to observe the holiday going forward in her family. So this was our, our choice in deciding which holidays to talk about and in deciding how to talk about them. Uh, We want to try to find things that are relevant and interesting, not exotic and weird. Uh, So the Erev is one example of that. So thinking about circles and cycles, uh, I wanted to talk to you about the the kind of circles that are involved in the Jewish calendar. And I don't want to repeat, last year we did an adult education program on the Jewish calendar, and we sort of went through uh, how the calendar is structured and um, how you define day and night and all those different details. I don't want to redo that for the people that were here for that. Uh, But at the same time, I want to give us an understanding of the overall structure of the calendar. Okay. So the first two circles that you need to keep track of for the Jewish calendar are the sun and the moon, because they define the time that makes up the Jewish calendar. We don't have a purely lunar calendar that only is based on the cycle of the moon, which is 29 or 30 days, and we don't have a purely solar calendar where the equinox and the solstice are the most important defining points for marking the calendar as you go. Uh, And they're equally distant and always on the exact same dates. And the calendar is coordinated uh, with leap years uh, so that the solstices and equinoxes don't move. That's a purely solar calendar. Um, And we've had examples of those in human culture. The Islamic calendar is a purely lunar calendar, where it doesn't matter that you lose 10 days on the solar year as I've said before, because in Saudi Arabia, the seasons are hot and sandy, hot and sandy, hotter and sandy and hot and sandy. So it doesn't matter if your holidays move in the calendar. On the other hand, if you're in an agricultural setting like the land of Israel or in Europe, you want your spring festival to be in the spring. So you've got to keep it in tune with the seasons. Purely solar calendars, more like the Gregorian calendar, um, even the Julian calendar, which was the original Roman calendar. Uh, The the Egyptian calendar was a sun-based calendar. So we have examples of those. The Jewish calendar is a hybrid. Uh, the technical term, believe it or not, is a loony solar calendar. <laughs> <laughs> Spelled it's L-U- L-U-N-I, <laughs> not uh, L-O-O-N-E-Y. No pun intended. Right. Uh, because its months are based on the moon, but it's coordinated so that things don't get out of season. Something like uh, 9 out of every 17 years there's a leap month that gets added, basically every two or three years. You get a leap month that's added. That's why the Jewish holidays tend to jump in our general calendar. Um, Hanukkah can be very early, quote-unquote. It's always the same day on the Jewish calendar, of course. But it can be early, one year, and then the next year it'll be 20 days later because you've added a leap month uh, to keep the seasons in, uh, in match. It's actually a Babylonian calendar. They came up with it. and We just borrowed it. Uh, we even borrowed the names of the months because uh, the original Hebrew names for the months were first month, second month,
2: (laughs) seventh month.
1: Um, In fact, if you read uh, the Torah legislation, it'll say in the first month and the seventh month, although they actually ran the calendar differently because their first month was in the spring, and their seventh month was what we would now call the first month where Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur show up. So the sun and the moon are important also because they define how you celebrate. Which is the more important heavenly body in the Jewish calendar? Well, you could argue that it's the moon. And not just as the people of Chelm did, that it's, you need the moon more than the sun because it's out when it's dark and uh, the sun is out when it's light, so you don't need it as much. Um, the, uh, the reason why the moon is more important, you can tell, is because the days start at night and the holidays start at night. We always say it's the night before, uh, but actually that's when the, the, the counting starts. Uh, Because the moon is what determines the date and the days. So you'll have a full moon on the 15th of every Jewish month. And you have a new moon on the 1st of every Jewish month. And it's always matched up to the lunar cycle. There's even a minor holiday that we really don't even cover in our classes called Rosh Chodesh, which is the 1st of the month. Literally means Rosh, head. Chodesh means uh, month. But also Chadash, as in our name, means new So a Chodesh is marked by the Chodesh, by the new moon. And you would do a sanctification of the moon, you would mark it, it was a women's holiday, women were exempt from working on, I guess, only that one day a month. (laughs) Uh, But uh, it was the first of the month, Uh, it was marked as a women's holiday, and now some uh, Jewish women's groups have tried to reclaim Rosh Chodesh as a kind of women's time, um, space, and event. Um, We haven't historically in our movement, because we've been so gender egalitarian for so long, that we haven't felt the need to mark off specifically women's space in a ceremonial sense. Um, But uh, it's certainly a possibility, and uh, again, it's something we haven't covered in our Sunday school, but we might in the future. So those are the the first circles, are the, the heavenly bodies and their cycles. Obviously, you have the seasonal cycles, and originally the Jewish calendar basically just had seasonal holidays. It had a spring holiday, it had a summer holiday, it had a fall holiday. If you look back at some of the earliest calendars that appear uh, in the Torah, um, it only mentions these three holidays, three times a year. It doesn't even give them dates. It doesn't even say what months they are. It's just the feast of this and the feast of that and the feast of the other. So in the spring, there's Chag Hamatzot, the feast of matzahs. It's the the, um, winter wheat harvest and also the clearing out of the old grain. There's the... Harvest Festival, Chag Katsir, the in-gathering festival, that was what today is called Shavuot, in the summer. And there was the Feast of In-Gathering, Chag HaAsif, Asif means to, to gather, and that was what today is Sukkot, in the fall. And that was it, there wasn't even a winter holiday, because it was a rainy season, and who wants to go out and do anything? Okay. So then they invented banking? <laughs> yes, right. So uh, we, uh, we added some layers of culture to this, um, and also layers of interpretation. Because, of course, that agricultural layer is probably the earliest layer of a lot of these Jewish holidays. It's what you could call the common human experience layer. So, the harvest in the spring. And, the, and there are all kinds of themes that come out in the spring that also appear in other cultures and other celebrations. Um, there most likely was some kind of winter festival that didn't make it into the calendar. that was marked by the lighting of lights. Surprise! Other cultures also tend to light lights in the winter. Uh, so, Hanukkah has even pre-Jewish origins in that common human experience of lighting lights. So you have the cycle of the
2: seasons, it's another layer of circling, right? Oh, yes. When when were those time? When were those mentioned? What it was at that time that this, the three, three major yeah. times? Well, this it's
1: is in uh, Exodus chapter 23. That's where you'd find it written. Right. Right. Um, in terms of when this was being done, it was most likely during the first temple period, which would be a Ballpark 800-700 uh, BCE. Okay. Um, by the time that the Jews have returned from exile, around five hundred BCE, they have the Torah written and they have a calendar more or less set, and that includes much more detail to the holidays, including dates and.
2: But basically, late. when the, some of the Bible is being written, yes, what well, you're talking about the when sort of pre-Biblical texts right. are okay. being assembled nice. and, and drafted, exactly. Okay.
1: Uh, again, it's hard to find out because the editors have, you know. Uh, covered it over, and paper doesn't last. You know, uh, monumental architecture can last, but paper doesn't last as well. Uh, for whatever reason, the Hebrews went from clay tablets that the Babylonians used <coughs> to papyrus or paper, and uh, it didn't uh, prove as enduring. And honestly, the clay tablets only lasted because the, the storehouses got burned and it fired the tablets more, and then mm-hmm. you know, then they get buried and then they last because you dig them up. Anyways. Now, another cycle that's happening throughout the Jewish calendar, which is really unique to the Jewish calendar, not doesn't appear in the Babylonian calendar at all, is Shabbat. The idea that every seven days, you get a day off. Now, in the ancient world, Jews were often thought of as being lazy, because they insisted on one day off every seven. But in many cultures, it was maybe every ten days, or maybe if you're a slave, no days off. But the Hebrews gave their animals a day off, they gave their slaves a day off. Everyone got a day off every seven days. Obviously very uh, lazy people. Um, And this really is, from all the accounts that I've read, a really uh, unique feature of the Jewish calendar. And the irony is, you'd think that if it shows up very often, Shabbat is a minor holiday. But actually, Shabbat is a a very significant holiday in the Jewish calendar, with the level of observance requirements relatively high compared to some others. Hanukkah, for example, is a minor holiday. You don't have to not do work, you don't have any major assemblies, major changes in the liturgy, the daily prayer service, not a big deal. Shabbat is a very big deal. Um, In fact, the calendar was arranged such that that certain holidays worked around Shabbat. So you would not have Well, I'm trying to remember uh, the example. Yom Kippur and Shabbat are often coordinated so that they don't overlap in a way that you couldn't have the Shabbat dinner on Yom Kippur conflict, that kind of thing. Um, or something like that. Uh, that might, might not be a good example because I think Yom Kippur is a Saturday this year. Uh, but there are there are coordinations like that that work around Shabbat. Um, and uh, so it's, it's interesting that it comes so often, but it's still seen as very important. Now, thinking about Shabbat, what are the most important details that you want an eight-year-old coming out of our third grade class to have learned about Shabbat through their experience in uh, Sunday school? Well, what are some details that you'd want them to know? Just I'm talking on the entire range of what's done on Shabbat from Eruv Insanity through cultural whatever. Um, what would be some details you'd want them to know?
0: Well, family.
2: That it's mm-hmm. a time for family to be together. Okay. Rest. Okay. Reflection. Whatever, whatever you mean by that. Well, right, right. <laughs> reflection for the week. Songs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Food. <laughs> yeah.
1: In fact, it was uh, traditional that you had to have a meat meal on Shabbat. Remember, with the meat and dairy split, you had to have a meat meal on Shabbat because that was thought to be a more celebratory meal. Um, and that's why the chicken soup tradition became rooted there, because if you were poor... What you could afford as a meat dish was a chicken, chicken soup. And in fact, some Jewish communities would make money by taxing kosher chickens because they knew everyone had to buy at least one a week. Mm-hmm. Very regressive taxes. And they taxed Shabbat candles, too. You want them to know that candles are lit
0: yeah.
1: on Shabbat, I think that's reasonable.
0: So the ritual and...
1: Right. right some elements of it. You may not want to... Uh, This is, again, one of the interesting details. Do you know why women cover their eyes when they light the Shabbat candle? When they, after the Shabbat candles, if you remember from Fiddler on the Roof, they sort of Mm -hmm. do it like this, Mm -hmm. and then they cover their eyes and say the blessing. Okay. Well, it deals with a paradox. The paradox is that lighting the candles marks the beginning of Shabbat. You actually have to do it slightly before Shabbat, but for you, it marks the beginning of Shabbat observance in your house. But the problem is... That normally, you do not say the blessing after you've done something. You say the blessing first. You bless the wine, and then you drink. You bless the bread, and then you eat. Well, the problem is, it's not Shabbat yet until you lit the candles. So you can't say, thank you for commanding me to light the candles of Shabbat until it's Shabbat. But once you've lit the candles, you're not blessing it after having done the action. So the solution is that you cover your eyes, and then it's as if they were lit.
2: <laughs> that
1: makes sense of the blessing. OK. Now, you got to memorize?: Yeah, you can't read it. Uh, now, I, I have to say, I don't mean to come across as too mocking of this uh, practice. Uh, on some level, it does seem absurd. Uh, but on the other level, you have to understand that these are people who are trying to operate in a world of the letter of the law, not necessarily as we would understand the spirit of the law. So now you can get, for example, kosher for Passover chocolate cakes. And people from the outside who aren't living in a Jewish law lifestyle would say, what's the point of all these rules if you can, you know, fuss around with potato starch and come up with, I thought the point was self-denial. I thought the point was something, that, well, from their perspective, it's the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. But the law says you cannot have leavened anything, and you can work around it, then you can work around it. Same thing with the, uh, the idea of the Shabbos Goy. The idea that you'd have a non-Jewish person who would do things for you on Shabbat that you're not allowed to do for yourself. Again, the irony is, there's a very clear statement in uh, the Mishnah, which is a collection of rabbinic Law, that you cannot ask someone to do for you what you can't do for yourself on Shabbat. And so that's why you have to ask obliquely. Boy, it's dark in here. And the hope is, <laughs>
0: I'll go turn that so, light on for you. Thank you.
2: Is that where the Jewish um, guilt stuff came from? Like, oh boy, I'm I'm working really around, angry right not saying what you think. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: It's a little bit. Well, there's also there's also a phenomenon of uh, not shaming people. So I did a, I did a funeral once. It was sort of a, a co officiated funeral with an Orthodox rabbi because of the daughters of the person who died. One was traditional, and one was humanistic. So I did the eulogy, and then he led the graveside service. But after the service, he said to me, I noticed your yarmulke blew off.
2: Um. Which I thought was great,
1: because um, you know, he didn't want to say, I see you're not wearing a yarmulke, i.e., you're a, you know, a, a dangerous heretic. Um, he, he gave me the benefit of the doubt, and said, I see your yarmulke blew off. And my, my answer to him was, I, d- I don't wear one, it's not my minhag, which means it's not my custom. Technically, wearing a yarmulke is not a law, it's a custom. It's a different layer of uh, importance, but it's become a custom so universally observed that it has almost the force of law. But still, so, it isn't my custom. My my father hasn't worn one since I was alive. My mother's grandfather didn't wear one, so in my family it is the custom not to wear one. Anyways.
0: But you use that word.
1: But I use the right. You have to, again this is this is our challenge with our kids. You want them to be literate, you want them to know. Some, at least some of what's going on if not all the arcane details of how many cubits can you walk on Shabbat before you walk too far again, not as relevant uh, so knowing uh, that you eat challah on Shabbat knowing about chicken soup knowing about lighting candles knowing about uh, rest, whatever you mean by rest um, maybe as they get older knowing a little bit about some of the restrictions uh, on what you'd be allowed to do or not to do and where those come from the idea that traditionally there are 39 categories of work that you're not allowed to perform, and um, where that number comes from. Um, getting a feel for it is useful. If nothing else, if they're ever going to read any Jewish literature, including modern Jewish literature, those kind of issues come up. And they're just not going to get it if they don't know something of that traditional background. Uh, and also how they might choose to use it. So one example that I included in my home Shabbat service that. Uh, some of our classes do look at, um, and also is on the web, and uh, community, uh, families uh, can use. Um, I included a section on blessing the children, which is part of the traditional ritual on, um, on Shabbat. But I included a different text. Instead of having just the parents bless the children, I had sort of a mutual uh, dialogue piece. Um, and offering a chance for each side to say something nice about the other which is a nice uh, progress sometimes at uh, certain stages of life. Yes it is.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> even if you have to program it sometimes nice, it, uh, it can be good. Can it be long? Can we, can we say it's long? Well you can, in your home you can say whatever you choose. <laughs> that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's right. I, I, I'll tell you that uh, you know uh, law gets a lot less force as the kids yeah, get older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it becomes a suggestion. Um, when I came home from college once, my father wanted me to get up sometime before 10 in the morning, and I thought it was unreasonable, so I said, I'll take it under advisement.
2: <laughs> because
1: I st- I don't have to get up. <laughs> you can't make me get up anymore. Uh, so things change. Okay, so that's Shabbat, the cycle that occurs throughout the Hebrew calendar cycle. Um, and again, what are they going to know, what are they not going to know? Well... They get some flavor of it in um, uh, kindergarten and first grade and second and third grade. Um, They even do a sort of practice Shabbat dinner with challah and chicken soup in the second and third grade. They go bake challah uh, in the kindergarten and first grade class. Uh, They made little Shabbat candlesticks that my daughter brought home from kindergarten. Um, So they get a feel for what they are, and they even learn a little bit about something called Havdalah, which is marking the end of Shabbat on Saturday evening. There's a, a short ritual that includes smelling sweet spices and uh, lighting a special braided candle that has multiple wicks and colors on it. Um, the word Havdalah itself means distinction, where you distinguish the Shabbat from the rest of the week. Um, not, a lot of human, not a lot of human institutions do a regular Shabbat event on Friday night, uh, and I would say almost none, maybe a few, tend to do something on Havdalah unless it's for a special event. So if you had a Saturday night congregational event, you would mark that in some way. When you have Saturday evening bar or mitzvahs, they include the avdala symbols in what they're doing. Um, That's reasonable to do. Uh, But again, we want the kids to at least know what it is so they get a flavor for it. And if if they import that idea of doing something to their family, then uh, fantastic. But uh, in the end, the family will make the choice for themselves. But we don't do a lot of study of Shabbat after the second or third grade class. Um, it comes up a little bit in my seventh grade B'nai Mitzvah class, where we learn a little bit more about the restrictions and where they come from and what the liturgy would be that they would see. They're going to be going to Shabbat services at other synagogues, and they should know the difference between the daily service and the Shabbat service, at least a little bit. Um, and again, as they're reading modern Jewish literature, they should be able to understand a little bit more about that background.
0: Is that modern Jewish literature part of our curriculum at all? Or do we have like a a book list at all?
1: Well, we don't read a lot of it um, in the upper gl- grades, but we certainly could. You know, we could have a sort of young uh, young readers uh, book list or short story list. Um, there are some examples of them in uh, an anthology that our movement publishes called Judaism in a Secular Age, which I think is our confirmation gift, but I'm not positive. So they would have some examples of it there. People like Sholem Aleichem, Yudlamet Peretz, sort of the founders of modern Yiddish or Jewish literature. Again, it's, is it the beginning of something? Sure. Um, but uh, in the end, our, our job given two hours a week on a Sunday um, and uh, limited persuasion beyond that time uh, is get them interested, spark something, and then if they pursue it, they'll have the tools to, uh, to do it. It's the same with Hebrew study. You know, They're not going to be fluent coming out of our program, but if they have an interest... Uh, Many of the high schools or certainly the Jewish uh, educational institutions beyond, you know, the Jewish communal institutions will have some Hebrew classes, or in college, they can pursue it uh, themselves. Okay, so now when we get into the heart of the Jewish calendar cycle, we have the high holidays, we have uh, Sukkot, the Harvest Festival, we have Simchat Torah at the end of that, we have Hanukkah in the winter, we have Tu B'Shvat, which doesn't feel like a spring holiday when we do it in January or February, but it does mark sort of the beginning of that. Um, We have Purim, which occurs the next month. We have uh, Passover, the month after that. Then there were a series of um, harvest-related holidays, including Shavuot, which generally is near the end of our school year. Um, We have modern Jewish holidays, like Israeli Independence Day, Israeli Memorial Day, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Obviously those aren't the Torah because they were added at a later time. Um, And then there are also a series of minor holidays that we don't observe. Often they appear in the summer. They're minor fast days. Um, There's a a small fast before Purim. Uh, There's a small fast for the firstborn before Passover. There's a fast in the middle of the summer called the Fast of Gedalia after a uh, governor of uh, Judea that rebelled against the Babylonians and then was killed in response. Again, relevance... Not so much. So thinking about the high holidays first, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, what elements would you say are the most important that you want the kids to be familiar with, keeping in mind, of course, it has to be age-appropriate. You know, they're going to be getting different things out of it at different uh, stages. So what are some of the elements you'd want them to know?
2: Does anyone know anything about the Well, <laughs> no, I think that it, first of it all, of of that it central. marks the Jewish count, that marks the Jewish <coughs> new, new year. Right. I mean, whatever, you know, that, that would be important. I think what you stress in terms of looking back and what, atonement, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Not for reflection. Yeah. Right,
0: right.
2: In our case, it's not
1: asking for forgiveness from beyond, um, but it is looking within and self-evaluation. I really like
2: that because it's really nice. It's something we could do more than once a year.
0: But um, I think it's good to look back. It's marking the time. Right. It's also part of the shared Jewish experience, whether it's, you know, orthodox to, you know, absolutely secular. You know, it's a time when I think every Jew feels more of their Jewishness and less of whatever, you know, pantheon They, they are a part of, you know, in society, it's, it's a culturally significant event that doesn't happen, you know, with any other culture at that point. Mm-hmm. Right?
1: And, and it's one of those cases where we're not going to just move it to the nearest Saturday. Now that the exact day is important to do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. at least in our congregational calendar. Um, now, interestingly enough, for some people, a Rosh Hashanah dinner is the tradition. Even more so than the services,
2: that mm-hmm.
1: the family dinner and the family time is how they've observed it. Um, they may never have been affiliated with the synagogue or have been, you know, through the bar mitzvah and then done for any number of reasons. Um, and so, for them, Rosh Hashanah is his family time as much as anything else. On the breakfast on Yom Kippur, um, even if they haven't fasted, it's the the getting together of the family and the deli trays that uh, that mark the holiday. Um, other elements of the high holidays that we emphasize: the round challah, that's traditional, apples and honey uh, for a New Year. Um, certain foods that
0: are again traditionally associated with the holiday. Um, there's a tradition. I'm actually, actually bothered by the apples and honey. <coughs> Why? Because it's like a um, it, it's like you're you're casting your lot to have a sweet New Year, and it, it's a little bit of a, a superstitious type of ritual. Well, okay. And that if you don't do it, that somehow you're going to have a bitter year ahead yes. of something.
1: Uh, how many people say something to someone else after they sneeze? Oh, all
2: the time. Mm-hmm, right.
1: It, does it improve their health? No. No. And
0: it's <laughs> taken does it, in?
1: Does it return their soul to the inside after they sneeze it up? No. <laughs> okay. So there are rituals that we do that have
0: pre-rational origins. And... Uh, Yeah, it doesn't hurt. I think the difference, though, is that you're actually doing it to have a sweet new year. It's actually... Well, maybe it's expressing the
1: desire Mm -hmm. for a sweet new year, if you think of it that way. So, you know, I I often say we don't pray for things to happen. We certainly hope that things happen. We certainly work for things to happen. So saying, I want X to happen is expressing the same desire as I pray that X happens. Um, But it's more tangible. Um, and it's more honest and it's more predictable and it's not expecting it's going to happen. So eating the the apples and honey, I would interpret it as not making a sweet new year as much as expressing the wish of having a a sweet new year. Uh, That's a little bit less uh, mumbo-jumbo. It's very much in opposition to how the high
0: holidays are taught in Orthodox synagogues Mm -hmm. where it's called the Days of Awe, or in my house the Days of Misery. (laughs) Because it was, especially if it was on Shabbat Shabbat, like we had this year, the restrictions, um, Let alone not eating, but, you know, you can't turn a light on, you can't flush
1: the toilet, I don't know what else they were were doing. Well, for young people there's no drinking, there's no leather
0: shoes. You can't brush your teeth. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. crazy.
2: No
0: so, so the, the amount yeah, of honey, honey. Is, is probably, you know, just this much <clears throat> against all that negatively.
1: Well, and, and keep keep in mind also that this was a, this was a time of judgment. Going back right. to the agricultural calendar, this was just before the rainy season started. And if the rains came at the right time, people would live. And if the rains came at the wrong time, people would die. This was a time people imagined that they were being cosmically judged. And so what do you do when your parent shows up to judge you? You pre-punish yourself. You afflict yourself. You make yourself look miserable so that the parent will say, well, you've suffered. Right. Well, all right. I, you know, I'll, I'll relent. What? I'll let you off this time. I'll let you off this time. Exactly. exactly. You've shown, you've shown <laughs> by your own self-affliction that you really, truly are sorry for what you've done. And so I'll let it go. So that's why people wear their white kittel, which is the the garment that they'll be buried in. They literally on Yom Kippur lay down flat on their face on the floor for part of the service. They get out in the aisles and they lie down flat on their face for part of the service. Speaking of <laughs> well, they're speaking in Hebrew most of the time anyway. Um, but uh, they don't eat, they don't shave, they don't wash. I mean, it is really a, a very rigid self affliction to make yourself look miserable. Okay. But, but that's based on an assumption of a day of cosmic judgment. When it's self judgment, you don't necessarily need to beat yourself up as much. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's also the sort of pop culture version of the high holidays it's a show off time and, you know, the, the new mean coats and whatever. Um, that's, it, it's ironic when you read that stuff because it's like the opposite of what we think the point of the holiday <laughs> is, uh, but people get caught up in the showmanship of it uh, and the being seen part as opposed to the experiencing something part. Uh, certainly you have uh, the, some of the songs and uh, liturgical traditions that are part of the holiday. Uh, many of the traditional liturgy we don't use at all, um, some of what we want our, our kids to at least be familiar with the phenomenon uh, and some of the songs we use are traditional in that uh, in that sense um, Now in terms of our kids experience of the high holidays they do learn about them in Sunday school uh, in that kindergarten through third grade class and hopefully they do attend some uh, remember services are also learning opportunities uh, for the family services that we run when we first started the congregation we ran a joint, it was like an all-ages service. It was both adults and kids, and we only ran one uh, adult service and one all-ages service. Um, and my experience with the all-ages service was that it was there were too many adults for the kids to really get something targeted to them, and too many adults that weren't parents of kids that would put up with it. Um, so when we added to the calendar, we were able to add a kids-only service, or I mean, not kids-only, but kids-focused only but uh, kids focus only um, and so those are the family services that we use today. But we also um, have the kids, when they get older, hopefully to go to the adult services. We've, we've chosen sixth grade as an appropriate breaking point, depending on, you know, each parent knows their kid a little bit better. Um, what we don't want is the kids dragged along when they're five to a service that's way over their head, for a couple of reasons. One is it's not nice to the kid, and it will you know produce bad... Feelings about the high holidays. We don't want them to feel like it's a time of suffering and misery. Um, really, everything's changed. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. There's a uh, there's a value to, to like the uh, the pledging of fraternity model. Because people who endure that suffering feel it must be worth it. <laughs> the brain does that, uh, that calculation. Uh, but you know, all right, we'll start with the nice stuff. Um, at the same time, our services are designed for the audience to understand what's going on. So most of the songs have a translation the songs always have translations and have English letters so those people can sing along. The (coughs) readings are in English so people know what's going on and hopefully are interested and inspired by it. In a service where it's all in Hebrew and people don't know what's going on, who cares if the kids are there to distract? It doesn't matter. So ironically our services are less kid friendly than uh, perhaps a more traditional one. But on the other hand we want the kids to get a meaningful experience too that's appropriate to them.
0: Okay. You just said two, but the thing is, how many of the adults got a meaningful experience when it was all in Hebrew? Because you look at the more traditional synagogues. I mean, I remember going to you know when I was thirteen and, and going to all the barbat mitzvahs. I just sat there twiddling my thumbs because I didn't know what was being said. Yeah, they didn't have a clue.
1: And many of them could read it fast. Yeah, no. they, they don't understand they say, it, but they can yeah. they can recite it. Right. Right. And uh, so it's...
0: they had no idea what it meant.
1: Yeah. it's But it's the for them, it's the value of community and identification. with. We're all saying the same thing. We, we all don't know what's going on, but we're all saying the same thing. And it's right. what our grandparents would want us to say. And so now we feel good. Okay. Even if they didn't know. <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> um, the other thing that we did in terms of high holiday education is our confirmation class, ninth and 10th grade, visit all these other communities and ask all these questions about what do you believe and what symbols are used and we decided, you know, why not make them do it to us? (laughs) Do a field visit to a Kol High Holiday Service and then it will at least make them come to one of the adult services but also it will give them a chance to see what we're doing. And it's been very interesting, a number of the students have come back to that in their own speeches. Uh, in their confirmation speeches where they said we went to a service somewhere else and you know Willow Creek was a lot of bells and whistles and break dancers and big screen TVs um, but in some ways the high holidays that we went to at were a little more meaningful because they were more intimate and personal and you weren't alone and you said Happy New Year to the people next to you but it, there was something about it that uh, that felt more relevant so that's been a good experience and again an educational experience for them too Okay, so that's the high holidays and how we teach those. Now with Sukkot and Simchat Torah, which is on the end of that uh, holiday, um, again, there's uh, choices here. Um, we could discuss all the minutiae of what does the covering on the sukkah need to be and how many stars do you need to be able to see so that it's a legal covering, uh, how much rain has to be coming down so you get out of your sukkah into the house, and how long after Yom Kippur can you start building the sukkah? Again, most of our families don't choose to build their own personal sukkah. Now, my family, uh, two years ago, we bought one of these build-your-own-sukkah kits that gives you uh, some screws and bolts and uh, brackets and uh, what lumber you need to buy and the design and go have fun. And so we bought the lumber and we stained it and we... Throw the holes, it took us about three hours to get the thing up the first year. Second year, only about an hour. Because <laughs> you leave a lot of the things attached and, uh, and you know how to do it because you've done it once. Um, and we don't live in it. You're supposed to actually live and sleep and eat every meal in the sukkah. Uh, in Chicago, you'll get pneumonia if you try and do that uh, every night. Um, but it was still fun to have the sukkah up, to eat out there from time to time. Uh, We have a deck that works out. It's right out our back patio door, so uh, we don't have to go down the hill or anything to get to it. Um, So it was a nice uh, idea in uh, in retrospect to try and do that kind of thing. Again, what do people remember for their own Jewish upbringing? It's almost always what happens at home, the Rosh Hashanah dinner, the Passover Seder. Sitting through a service, Hmm. not as as, uh, meaningful as what you do with your family. Um, But in terms of what we teach our kids about this, again, we don't want to wind up in the situation where we're programming our kids to go home and tell your parents, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> That's not the objective. Uh, it's to make them aware of what's possible, and if they say to their parents, can we try this, then mm-hmm. the parents can choose yes or no. There's no judgment one way or the other, uh, but again, they're literate in, in what the options are. So Sukkot being a harvest holiday, uh, we talk about the symbolism of the uh, fruit. Um, we don't talk as much about the original rationale for Sukkot as the Torah presents it which is, you were wandering in the desert for 40 years and you needed to build this temporary housing well um, that story doesn't really jive for a couple of reasons, first of all, did they carry the wood with them between you know, everywhere they moved did they find new trees, it's a lot of wood to be hauling around for that many people Uh, There aren't a lot of trees in the desert. Okay. Um, Secondly, it seems so closely identified with the kind of temporary housing that farmers would build out in the field so they didn't have to go all the way from the city to the field in the harvest when you're working all day long. It makes sense that it uh, had that kind of a uh, setting. And uh, as I mentioned, there are elements of the holiday, including its earliest descriptions, that seem to be pre-Exodus story. It doesn't refer to the Exodus in those earlier descriptions of Chag HaAsif, the holiday of... Uh, harvesting, gathering in. So, be that as it may, even Simchat Torah was added a much later. It's not described as Simchat Torah in this book at all, and the Torah itself. doesn't refer to Simchat Torah. It's just the end of Sukkot. In fact, technically, it's the second day of the end of the holiday. Um, as you know, many Jewish holidays have a second day. It's the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the second Seder on Passover. Um, the origin of that was that because the lunar months are 29 and a half days, sometimes they're 29, sometimes they're 30 days, it used to be established by observation. So you would see the new moon, and then you would as witnesses, come to the court, and they would decide yes, it was a new moon, or no, it wasn't a new moon. Um, and then they would send out messengers to all the Jewish communities living everywhere, saying, we've seen the new moon, you can start the next month. Now, given that most holidays are on the 15th of the month, you got two weeks. What if you look more than two weeks away? Well, so now you've got to add this extra day just in case you missed it. And, uh, it's a and later, gen- what? It's a rounding error. It's a rounding error, error. exactly. Um, now, they even had a, a statement in the Talmud that says we already know what the calendar is. We've done it by math. We've calculated everything. We know when the day is. We're not, there's no court in Jerusalem making the dates anymore. So why are we still doing this? And, the, and the, basically the answer is this is what your parents did. <laughs> this is what your grandparents did, so you're going to keep doing it. And at one time, they would observe the second day in Diaspora, but not in the land of Israel itself, because, again, that was within the 14-day you know, travel window. Uh, but now there are some traditional Jews in Israel who observe two days, because it's what their parents did, even when they were in Eastern Europe, even though they're back, still, uh, still observing uh, uh, the second day
0: of that. What? <laughs> one of the best reasons coming out of the Talmud. I... Yeah, right. I know. There's, there is some rationality there sometimes. Um, So
1: Sukkot had a second day at the end And that became Simchat Torah Um, What's done in many traditional synagogues Is it's a Torah party You know, you have a parade And you carry the scrolls around And you dance and uh, everything else Uh, We've talked in other settings About uh, our sense of what's appropriate And not humanistically appropriate Use of a Torah scroll Um, You know, the uh, respecting it And standing for it when it's being read Seems reasonable But the dancing and kissing seems (laughs) Uh, a little over the top, um, what I call Torah You know, it's like idolatry, but with the book. And um, and so we try to find our right balance. Um, and we also use Simchat Torah as a celebration of wisdom, a harvest of learning, model not just the Torah itself, but the root of the word Torah is teaching, like More or Morah in Hebrew means teacher. So we can draw on it that way. Now Hanukkah, we just went through, uh, endured. Some would say. Uh, celebrated others would note. Um, so I don't need to remind you how we approach that holiday. Again, we want the human origins to it. We want the myths about it, but we also want the real history, that the Maccabees were not all sweetness and light. <laughs> and these miracles of the light story showed up many years later, and the dreidel isn't what people thought the dreidel was. And, you know, sometimes we're like the Grinch that stole Hanukkah, <laughs> because we want to tell you the real story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, for me, as a, as a scholar of Jewish history, um, it's important to know the real story. And one of our principles is that people can handle the truth. And even kids can handle the truth. Uh, We're not going to simply tell them the cute story without telling them whether it's true or not. I mean, my my daughter today uh, in the car on the way to Sunday school said, is Cat in the Hat real? Because she's trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. And I said, well, it's a cartoon, so it's not real. Um, And she said, what's a cartoon? So now I get to have the flip book discussion. (laughs) Uh, but the point is that they want to know what's real and what's not, and they can appreciate things that aren't real in the sense of really heaven. Uh So knowing that the story of the miracle of the lights, they should know the story. They shouldn't go out there in the Jewish world not having ever heard that story, but at the same time, they should know it's just a story. And it's a reasonable approach, and it's a responsible approach, and it's not a you lied to me approach. Because they'll go to university and they, they take a Jewish studies class, and they'll learn about where Hanukkah really came from and who the Maccabees really were, and better they get it now in an integrated Jewish community as opposed to as something that's challenging who they are. That's our perspective with Passover and all the other holidays. Okay. Any questions on Hanukkah, Sukkot, and Torah? Okay. Okay. So now when we get into uh, what we do in January forward, uh, in our new year in the secular, secular, in the general calendar, um, we, uh, we have Tu B'Shvat, which was, for a long time, a very, very minor holiday. Um, its origin is in taxation. Now, do you know when every horse's birthday is? Every horse's birthday is January 1st. They're defined as a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old by the calendar year in which they were born. So if they're born in April, they're, a two, they're in their second year on January 1st. And they're in their third year on January Because keeping track of all the dates would have been crazy. And so the, the new year for trees was, how do you tell how old the tree is? Well, right, you plant the sapling, that's one. Two B'Shvat, new year for trees, it's two. And the third year you can start to take... The uh, taxation tied uh, portion of the fruit, so it really was a taxation. It was like a tax year. It was a, a vehicle for apportioning uh, the uh, the produce. Um, and for many years, it was a very minor holiday. There was a tradition of planting trees, wherever that came from. Um, in the mid, in the Middle Ages, the idea of eating special fruits and drinking special cups of wine and a, a seder developed in Jewish mystical circles, primarily in the city of Sfat or Safed in uh, the north. Uh, and in the uh, 20th century, it was revived first by the Zionist movement,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who wanted a plant trees holiday so that they could plant trees. And actually, Israel is one of the few countries, the recent fire notwithstanding, that has actually increased its forestation level over the last mm-hmm. century as opposed to most of the countries which have reduced it. Um, they didn't always plant the right trees mm-hmm. for the climate. Because they love pine trees and they plant lots of pine trees, and pine trees with all the pine needles are disasters when it comes to forest fires in, uh, in uh, that climate. But in any case, uh, it became prominent for the Zionist movement to use Tu Bishvat as a plant trees in Israel holiday. And then in the last 25 years or so, the environmentalism angle on Tu Bishvat has become very popular, so now this is a way to be environmentally uh, aware and Jewishly connected. Um, and to claim that Jews invented environmentalism, which of course is um, as much who as Jews invented democracy, uh, but you know, you hear that too. Um, in any case, uh, it's a way to connect those two values, if you put it honestly. Um, and so uh, when I grew up in a humanistic congregation, I don't ever recall doing a tuba shvat seder.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, and seder. I mean, this would have been in the 80s. Uh, but uh, ever since I've been a, a rabbi working in a congregation or on the other side of things, from the 90s forward, it's been very popular and many, many communities have done Tu activities, recycling programs, seders with the fruit, and so on. <clears throat> now, in our Tu education, uh, we don't talk a lot about the mystical side of the holiday and where that came from. We refer to it in passing, we don't get into it. Because again, how much time do you want to spend on the different layers of supernatural reality that the mystics in Sfat assumed you were traveling up and down as you drank the different wine. You know, enough. <laughs> we, we don't even get into it that much in our adult education settings, because it's not our approach to the holiday. The environmental angle we certainly focus on, and again, the personal angle. You know, the idea of the fruit that's hard on the outside but soft on the inside. It can be emblematic of a person who, or someone who is hard on the inside but soft on the outside. They look nice, but really they're not, and then the one that's edible all the way through has uh, the highest level, so to speak. Now getting into Purim and uh, Passover, one of my favorite services I've gotten to lead at Kol Kodash in the last six years was the Purim for adults only. Because Purim think of as the kids' holiday, right? Costumes, uh, making noise with the groggers, uh, the the clever story about the woman in disguise who's hidden who she is and then she reveals it to save her people and then the enemies get killed and yippee Okay, very sort of comic book style uh, story uh, which is sort of the motivation for our Megillah project that we put together the last few years where the students illustrated passages from the story and now it's made a, a display version of uh, the story with their images of how the story happened that fits totally fine Um, and there's an ethical side to it too there's a tradition of giving gifts to your neighbors and gifts to the poor and that's something we've drawn on a little bit Um, but by and large it's often thought of as a kid's holiday but when you actually read the book of Esther and it's very short, it's only about nine chapters um, and easily read it on your own it's appalling what's in the actual story you have a king who decides he wants to display his wife's beauty for all of his courtiers to ogle it. And she refuses. And so his advisors say, well, if the women hear that, no one's ever going to listen to their husbands again. So fire her. And he fires her. And then they decide to get a new wife. Now, it's not just a beauty contest. The king gets to try them out. So all the young women in the kingdom are collected in one harem, then one at a time they get called to the king for the night,
2: and then they go back.
1: What was that? I said that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, or as <laughs> Mel said, it's good to be the king. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. The king. yeah. So they start in one harem, they go visit the king, and then they don't go back to the same harem. They go to the other harem, which is the used pile. <laughs> <laughs> oh my <God>. All right. The <laughs> used. This card. Yeah. This card. Oh, All right.
0: So, yeah, everybody cool. jumped
1: between. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, you see, I mean, it, what, what grade level is this appropriate <laughs> for the kids to read? And I mean, it goes on. You know, uh, Mordecai um, has his, uh, his uh, niece uh, compete in this contest. Um, I mean, again, she doesn't have much of a choice. She's uh, told to go, but he told, tells her to hide who she is. Um, He himself uh, refuses to bow down to uh, Haman, who then conceives an irrational hatred of all things Jewish and all Jews and wants to wipe them all out in a genocidal, anti-Semitic rampage. Um, He then tricks the king into agreeing to do this, uh, even though Mordecai has actually saved the king's life. uh, But the king doesn't really know that much of what's going on. Um, Esther finally has to reveal who she is, even though she doesn't want to do it. But Mordecai said, look... You know, this is the this is the time, and don't think you're going to be exempt from this. It's going to hit you too. So she finally dupes Haman. <coughs> the only thing that turns it actually is the king sees Haman begging for his life on the same couch where Esther is, and misinterprets it, and thinks that Haman is trying to screw around with his wife, and so then he puts Haman to death and all of his sons. And then for some reason, the king can't rescind his own command, so he allows the Jews to kill their enemies in return, and they kill thousands and thousands of people. In fact, thousands of people pretend to be Jewish the word in Hebrew is they, they, Jew, they Judaize. they pretend to be Jewish out of fear of the Jews I mean it's like a diaspora wish fulfillment right? they've all hated us forever but now we get to kill all those sons of guns and they even want to be like us they convert to being us because they're afraid of us yeah, so, that's the uh, the excitement of the story. And at the end of the story, and Esther decreed this. Should, it was so wonderful having such a bloody uh, revenge that we should make a holiday out of this for for in perpetuity. Okay.
2: <coughs> that would be a different carnival yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or carnival or. Yeah. Right. no kidding right. or
0: okay. Okay. Tarantino movie.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. well I mean it's, again it's not an accident that you have this kind of uh, libertine holiday where in traditional sources you're supposed to uh, drink until you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordecai uh, at this time of year, Mardi Gras is the same time mm-hmm. carnival is the similar time so this sort of letting loose after the winter's over is not, uh, mm-hmm. not an unusual phenomenon um, so again, is this a, a kids-only <coughs> event? Mm. Well, uh, <laughs> well, you're missing something out. You're missing out on something in the holiday if you only do it as the kids' event. But you can't do this kind of material for the um, for the adults uh, for for the uh, the kids until they're much older. Um, so I did make a service that was uh, you know the uh, portal for adults only. And the coverage said no one under chai admitted. Um, so you had to be over a certain age. Uh, but uh, you know, this might be something to, to show at least the confirmation students to see you know, a little bit more and when we did the McGillah project I carefully picked which passages were done by which classes you know, the kindergarten and first graders talked about the, beautif- the beauty of the palace right? Mm-hmm. they can handle it it's the ninth and 10th graders who are dealing with the genocidal or the, the holocaust curriculum in the 7th and 8th grade they can deal with the genocidal impulse or the, uh, you know, the, the auditions for the, uh, the king and that kind of stuff we put in the older grades. Now, Passover is one of those iconic Jewish holidays. It's one of the... Please help yourself if you want some uh, drink or anything else. It's one of the iconic Jewish holidays, one of the most observed Jewish holidays along with Passover, along with Hanukkah. Now, why do you think Passover and Hanukkah are the most observed Jewish holidays? There are actually a few, a few reasons. Well,
0: Hanukkah, it's obvious because it correlates to Christian Christmas and... And, and, Easter. And,
1: and, and Easter. And Easter. Oh, Easter for Passover.
0: In mm-hmm.
1: fact, Easter is tied to Passover in the calendar for mm-hmm. some years. Okay, so supported by the surrounding culture. It's tied to family. Done in the home. Not in the synagogue, not in the public mm-hmm. space. It's not anywhere you have to pay to get in. Okay. Uh, it's connected <laughs> yeah, to food. Good, yeah, absolutely. It's a, fe- a special, uh, uh, f- special food specific to that holiday that you do. They're limited. Shabbat is every single week. <coughs> Keeping kosher is every single day. Lighting candles. It's an hour out of your life. Eight days. And you don't always make all eight days. You know, you're busy one night. Passover, it's one night. It's two, even if you follow the rules, it's a week. Right? right? Okay. So, limited time commitment. Supported by surrounding culture. Family based. In the home. Food connected. Winner. Okay. Now, the challenge for us is... First of all, again, if you thought there were a lot of rules about the Eruv and Shabbat observance, there are lots and lots of rules about what counts as leavened and unleavened material. And the koshering of the house and the cleaning out of the house. Did you know that when you're cleaning up, you're supposed to clean everything. And then you have a ritual called Bedikat Chametz, which is the looking for the chametz. But you have to take some crumbs and put them on the floor before you start looking. So that you won't have said the blessing in vain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you
1: guarantee that you'll find something before you go look.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So. Where, where's the part where you have to have an extra two sets of dishes? Right. Well, because the kosher for Passover rules apply to the dishes
0: too, not just to the, uh, the food that's on them. So. My favorite is why hummus is, is verboten. Oh, which one is it? Because it sounds like chametz. Oh, is that is that the yeah. region that you've heard? <laughs> oh, it sounds Jewish, too much like chametz. It's in, yeah, it's in the Jewish cooking book. So. What is chametz? chametz is the uh, word for
1: leavened bread. Mm. Right, right. Uh, matzah, The opposite of matzah mm-hmm. is chametz. It actually comes from the word. It comes from the word chametz, which means vinegar, which also is a fermenting uh, quality. Oh. Um So, in any case, there's all those rules. Again, our kids in third grade do not need to know all these gazillions of rules about what is and what isn't and how you handle it and whatever. Um, But the other challenge is that the central narrative of Passover, again, is it real or not?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Right? Well, we don't think it really happened the way it says so in the story. On the other hand, to not mention the story at all would seem to be a very odd Passover and a significant break with that tradition of Passover. I mean, you can say we're celebrating the tradition of having a meal, on this day. But it wasn't just the meal. It was the Haggadah, the telling of the story, and the four questions, and the symbols, and the foods. It wasn't just sitting down for a meal. You know, I mean, even Thanksgiving has its traditions. And if you didn't have, you know, families that are vegetarian dealing with the no turkey, uh, they they come up with this odd, disastrous concoction called that uh, (laughs) that just, doesn't satisfy anybody. <laughs> but you got to have something that fits the spot of the turkey in there. So we need something that fits the spot of the telling the story in what we do for Passover. Jordan, you to say?
2: Yeah, no, I have the biggest problem with the holiday. Not because I like the holiday a lot. And ever since I've been reading up more and realized that... And I've sort of spread the word to other people who didn't know that it was kind of established that this didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like my in-laws or my, you know who were like totally shocked, you know, and Jackie even was like, what do you mean? Is, is that just one view? I was like, no, it's pretty much established by most people, you know. And yet everything really revolves around that story. And, and I know, I guess like other fantasy stories or fairy tales, you could take something from it, but it's a little bit difficult because so much revolves around that. Yes, and it's, I mean to say symbolism. I mean, mm-hmm. I know it, it, it's. I just I'm struggling now.
1: Well, and the, in the irony of, of the, and the, of the irony story. of the story is, if you read the original story as presented in the Haggadah, Moses doesn't even appear because he's not important to the story. Moses is the loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. He's like the pointer, right? right? It's who's running the pointer. It's the hand holding the pointer that makes the difference, and that's of course God. And so, a large part of the uh, traditional Haggadah is taken up with praise and thanksgiving and more praise, and more thanksgiving. There's a whole section after dinner, which many people don't get to, uh, <laughs> and they are put all the books again, uh, called the Hallel, which is the praise section. It's just praise, 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 praise.
2: Yeah.
1: Thank you for saving us. Um, and the, the original Dayenu, if he'd only taken us out of Egypt, if right. he'd only given us the Torah, if he'd only done all these things for us, then that would have been enough. How marvelous it is that he did all these mm-hmm. things. Okay. So it's a very passive story. Now where the story becomes inspirational, is the symbolism to which it's, to which it's been used—that is, the hope for freedom, mm-hmm. the idea that slaves can in fact become free—somewhat mm-hmm. revolutionary. Certainly used in our own American setting right. as a motivational story. Harriet Tubman, aka Moses, right? Uh, Go down, Moses—the song that mm-hmm. we ourselves oh, sing yeah. at our uh, at our mm-hmm. Um So it, it has been a narrative of freedom that's important, and it's an ideal that's important. I mean, there are still people who are slaves, believe it or not, in this world, and uh, they are not being freed (laughs) at the moment. So there's uh, still work to be done. Um, The plagues, uh, the earliest humanist sagatas didn't include any plagues, because it was thought to be unredeemable. No, there's no way to save that piece because it's the ordinary Egyptians being afflicted for Pharaoh being stubborn, and by the end, for God making Pharaoh be stubborn just so he can show off. You know, if you only did eight plagues, it's not as impressive as ten plagues. Mm-hmm. And the last, he says, but I've been saving the good one for last. <laughs> and right. You're going to ruin it. i gotta, I got to harden your heart so I can get out this last one that I, I've been planning. To save it up right. for, for the big finale. Okay.
0: Yeah, it was a little overkill. It's also an origin story for the idea of a, a Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right, so, right, right,
1: right. Right, exactly. I mean, look, the, the Book of Mormon on some level is an origin story for Native Americans. You know, they're, they're the lost, some of the lost tribes of Israel. How did people get in this, in this continent? Well, it's been the lost tribes. Well, it's an origin story. It's not real, but it's an origin story. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, it's important to know the origin story um, and to take from it what you will. Um, and the symbols have, again, a pre-Jewish sort of a universal symbolism to the spring symbols like parsley, like the egg. Again, another culture that uses eggs in the Mm -hmm. spring um, as a symbol of new life. Um, I actually was on a program once talking about Easter and Passover with a priest, and at the end of the program I said, what's the story with the bunny? Where's the bunny? Like, I understand um, the, you know, the passion story and the resurrection and everything else, and the egg is new life, and I'm fine. What's with the bunny? (laughs) Where's the bunny come from? And the answer he gave was, it's fertility, right? It's the Mm -hmm. spring, it's new life, and so that's, uh, the Passover lamb is the first-born of the new kind. that's sacrificed in a special way. So you go back to that human origin mm-hmm. of it, and it has meaning. Uh, you have the Exodus version of that story, and you have uh, modern symbolisms that can be meaningful. Um, I, one of my favorite parts of the, the liberated Haggadah, which is the humanistic Haggadah by Peter Schweitzer from uh, our New York congregation uh, that we use in our congregational Seder, uh, that I really like is he goes through the symbols and he gives three layers of meaning: an agricultural meaning, a traditional Jewish meaning, and a modern meaning that's uh, inspirational. And I think that's very nice.
0: Plus, you got the the frat house. Uh, how much more can you uh, tolerate and challenge your neighbor?
1: Yes, you have to you have to suffer to uh, right. have some meaning out of it. If it was only fun and video games, then uh, it wouldn't have as much meaning. <laughs> Now, one of the challenges when we get to the end of the Jewish calendar in that cycle, fall to fall, uh, is we hit the summer. And guess what? We don't run Sunday school (laughs) in the summer. Uh, Now, if they ever do move to year-round schooling, which has a lot to speak for it, the summer camp industry would hate it, but in terms of not forgetting everything over the summer, that would be a real positive. If we do ever move in that direction, we may have Sunday school when school is in session, but... As the calendar works now, we don't have Sunday school for most uh, Shavuot uh, observances, and we don't have it for these uh, summer holidays. Tisha B'Av, which is a fast day to remember the destruction of the temple, that happens usually in August, we're just not in session. So we can spend time on them in the abstract, but most likely the kids are not going to experience them. It's not as relevant for them. So even though Shavuot was one of those original big three. Remember, you had the spring Passover, the summer Shavuot, and the fall for Sukkot. It's one of those big three original ones. It's supposed to be one of the holidays, but you get short shrift in our community because it's not as relevant to what they're going to experience. Um, Is that a problem? Sure. But again, two hours on a Sunday morning, there's only so much we can do. So that's our survey of what our kids get exposed to uh, through the holidays. Uh, Again, it's not only through what they learn in the kindergarten through third grade class, because we get a lot of students who join us at later ages, so they don't get as much study of the symbols and rituals behind it, and perhaps it's a weakness to it, but we can't go over it every single year in every single class because they'll rebel, (laughs) and they'll fall asleep. Again? All right. Um, So what we do instead is having the all-school programs, gives them a chance to experience it at sort of whatever level they're processing the event, even if it's chatting with their neighbors. Um, And uh, that gives them a chance to see it. And ultimately, as they get older, they may make the move to doing it themselves. And most importantly, and this is the last word to say on the uh, education front, the best education they can get is not going to take place in the Sunday school. Because what sticks? It's what they see in the family. It's what they see in the home. It's what they see their parents reinforcing by what the parents have chosen to do. You know, telling your kids not to do something that you do doesn't work, <laughs> because they see what you do. And do as I say, not as I do, generally doesn't work. <laughs> so given that, um, it's a balancing act uh, of inspiring the parents to do things and also educating the children into making their own choices going forward. I mean, my wife and I, we do more Jewishly in our homes than either of our parents' uh, sets of parents chose to do. We try to have a regular Shabbat dinner, uh, probably make it three out of four Fridays in a month, Um, we uh, build the sukkah as I mentioned my family never did that we uh, don't have bread during Passover never an issue for my family uh, growing up Um, but these are things that we've chosen to do out of what we know of what's possible Um, and our kids may choose to do differently they may choose to have bread on Passover they don't care or they may go do something else Uh, but in the end the goal of our educational program is that they know what the options are and they make choices for themselves and the more they see at home the more they may choose to adopt but In the end, again, relevance is the key. We're not just Jewish, learning all of Jewish culture and all of Jewish knowledge and all of Jewish practice. We're also humanists who believe that you're in charge of your own life and you're in charge of your own family. And what you do needs to fit with what's meaningful to you.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, So as you celebrate the holidays, that's the filter. It's the humanism.
0: this podcast was recorded and produced by ken burke on behalf of rabbi shalom and kol hadash in conjunction with repatriation studios i'm ken burke and thank you for listening